Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. This is bonus episode three. Now, <laughs> before I actually get into the episode, um, I know well, let's let's address the uh, gigantic elephant in the room. The podcast feed has been dead for I think three months now. I haven't gone anywhere. It's just been uh, crazy. Um, got a different job and trying to. Uh, settle into that. Um, I do have quite a few recordings on hand for season two, but I have in, in the recent months um, run into a little bit of, of trouble scheduling enough guests. And a lot of that's, I think, just to be perfectly honest, my fault. I, I don't send out enough emails. Um, I have more kind of on the horizon, but they don't have uh, firm dates yet. So um, maybe I'll... Uh, Maybe I'll do more solo episodes to uh, fill in the gap for for season two. Maybe I'll change the delivery style to where um, the these really really uh, information dense episodes or more uh, interviews are are more spaced out. Um, that a lot of that depends on this episode. So what I'm doing here today is the first time I've done this on the Combat Learning Podcast, and that is a solo episode. I guess you could call it something of a audio essay. Um, and what I'm going to do is I am uh, taking an episode from Dr. Rob Gray's fantastic podcast, the Perception in Action podcast. I interviewed Dr. Gray, um, well, for the very first episode, actually. Um, so he, he's been on the podcast before. He, his podcast was the, the first released chronologically. Um, CLP01, go back and listen to that if you haven't. Highly, highly recommended. Um, and I always highly recommend his podcast, The Perception in Action Podcast. It's a little bit more on the technical side, but he does a good job taking everything and translating it to where practitioners, um, and, by, and by that I mean practitioner as in somebody who actually coaches or teaches that, that type of, of practicing. Um, but, but also y- y- it's, it's not a long jump to take what he, what he um, translates for, for practitioners to also give to yourself or apply to yourself as a learner. Um, if you're just a student, you want to find find an edge in uh, helping your learning journey. So uh, highly recommended. Um, so today we are talking about economy of motion, more efficient movement. I know that this is a very pop. This is a very popular discussion in martial arts, especially in uh, when you talk to people who are more into the art aspect of it. But it's also an important, really important part of combat sports because you don't want to gas in the ring and and how much energy you spend to deliver strikes or or grapples or strangleholds is important to whether or not you're going to have enough gas in the tank to finish the match, as it were. Um, Traditionally, at least how I've seen it just about everywhere I've gone and how I think most of my friends who've been in martial arts for many years have also experienced it and how you will find it almost universally across coaches in, in different sports, not just martial arts, is that uh, economy of motion is approached almost in a behavioral way. You are given explicit 
instructions, um, highly detailed instructions on your performance, on what you can change about your performance. In this case, I'm really talking about a a given technique or or a combination so that it can be uh, more economical or more efficient from a strict kind of standard view. So coaches, they look at a technique and or a, or a particular tactic and they have an idea of what's the most efficient way to do it already. And then they try to communicate that to you as you're learning the technique or after you're learning the technique, depending on how your instructor likes to approach that sort of feedback. And um, so it's it's highly based on isolation, um, copious amounts of instruction, and tons of immediate feedback. And lots of uh, sterile repetition. So how it plays out, for example, in Taekwondo, which is what I've done for many, many years, is, uh, for example, if you have a round kick or a side kick and you want to be more efficient in how you throw that, you're going to end up doing, you're going to end up throwing hundreds and hundreds of the same round kick to a target. And then every time you throw a round kick or every few round kicks that you throw, you're going to get a lot of coaching feedback from your instructor. And then you try it again. So you do almost like uh, trials, like you would do um, in a batting cage where each, where each, um, hit is a trial and then you get feedback and then you try it again or the same thing with golfing if you've, if you've looked at how other sports um, how they coach and train you know so the the idea is as you perform something the coach is looking at everything you do and then he says you know place your limb just so or place it here or he gives you feedback on the timing of, of it like you need to release your hip here or turn your knee here or pivot here pivot, you know those sorts of things um and I, I'm going to suggest, and the articles are going to be in the show notes, um, as well as links to the Perception Action podcast, uh, that this is not a good approach to teaching economy of motion. In fact, I'm going to take a position that might sound extremely foreign to people in the martial arts world because we come from such a staunchly traditional instructional training background. Kind of more, not kind of, very much more influenced by traditional educational psychology than it is by any uh, contemporary approach to coaching sports, which is really what we we should be looking at. But that's another discussion. So my, uh, what I'm going to say is that instead of economy of motion being the product of copious amounts of highly detailed instruction, immediate copious amounts of coaching feedback, and isolated practice by and large, uh, instead it is about um, – it is about – a naturally emerging inclination of your body to become more efficient at any sort of motor pattern or motor program that it learns. 
So the the body naturally, and I think on if we were to change the context of this discussion to just about anything else, we could all agree on this. It's only when you start talking about martial arts instruction or sports instruction that people start getting weird. And and I think in any other context, we could agree that the body kind of naturally wants to migrate towards a state where it can maintain a certain output or a certain performance level, but with less effort, especially less muscular effort. That's kind of the idea behind cardiovascular training. Um, so economy of motion, I think, should not be approached as a matter of coaching direct coaching and instruction, but as a matter of how you design practice and how much practice you allow your students and learners and athletes to have. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Gray goes over a lot of technical reasons why, um, or not why, but how control and coordination works and, and how that kind of ties into the position he takes in the, uh, the podcast. Um, so the podcast that we're, uh, talking about, I think I mentioned before is episode 323, which is about economy of motion and efficiency of movement. And, um, I, the, I don't want to go into all the particulars of it. There's a few things I want to, um, to touch on, but, um, I think, um, I definitely think that as you listen to some of these articles, I'm going to kind of summarize for you, you'll understand how that works. Cause what I've said is maybe a little bit abstract and it's difficult to envision how that would work on a practical level where you actually have to have skilled coaching involved. Because based on what I said before, you know, if, if I didn't know anything about motor learning and I heard that, I would have said, oh, so he just wants us to spar all the time, right? We're just going to free spar all the time and that's all we're going to do. And then eventually you'll, you'll develop economy of motion. Well, <laughs> it'll take a long time, but yes, that, that will happen. But that's not what I'm advocating. I mean, we want, even though we don't want to disrupt the natural learning process, which is what combat learning is very much about trying not to disrupt the natural learning process, but to empower it and unleash it. Uh, but we still also want to be, we're managing a lot of things as coaches and learners. So we, we also want to try and flatten the learning curve in any way we can without being too disruptive or disruptive at all, if possible, to the natural learning process. So um, the so two pieces of evidence, and, and I'm sure there's there's evidence that that goes the other way that that's out there. But these 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 articles that that um, I read that are uh, that that Dr. Gray references in his podcast, I found very persuasive, um, and they kind of give us insight into how you can actually use a more constraints led approach to developing economy of motion or efficiency of movement as opposed to the traditional uh, method that, that I was just talking about before. If I know I just threw a new term, term in there. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know what the constraints-led approach is, um, I'm, I'm going to encourage you again to jump back to the 
CLP01, the first episode of the Combat Learning Podcast with Dr. Rob Gray, because he goes into the constraints-led approach um, and some of the issues around it, such as ecological dynamics and, and things like that. Um, also, a heads up, maybe to pique your interest in the upcoming season, I have an, a great discussion with uh, the host of the Talent Equation podcast, which is another awesome podcast that I highly recommend, um, with Stuart Armstrong. And we go into much more in-depth conversation about how to practically apply the constraints-led approach to coaching uh, sports. And he's actually a combat sports fan, even though he's not um, a, a coach in, in the combat sports. So he does a wonderful job of actually making very specific examples and analogies. So that's awesome. I'm very excited to release that um, coming up. Uh, and I, um, just to back up a little bit before I go on, um, I don't think I mentioned before, before I got into the episode, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking to start releasing up, uh, excuse me, season two before the year's out. So be looking around um, December for, for the drop of, of season two or for it to begin dropping anyways. But awesome, moving on. Um, so back to these articles. We, um, let's see where we go. I'm kind of tripping over myself here a little bit. There we go. So the, the first article I want to look at is titled Increased Movement Accuracy and Reduced EMG Activity as the Result of Adopting an External focus of attention. So th what this article or this research paper finds is that um, there, well, so actually let me, let me back up a little bit. What, what they do is they have two groups. They have, a, they have a group that they give traditional internally focused instruction to, to help them become more economical and efficient in their movement. Hey guys, real quick before the episode continues. If you're wondering how you can supercharge your training in a way that helps you actually perform better on the mat or in the ring, I've got the perfect thing for you. I've taken the scientific concept known as transfer of learning and distilled it down into a handful of dead simple, easy to understand rules you can use to supercharge your training today. And the best part is that it almost always makes training more fun, not less. Now you don't have to spend hours and hours of drilling just to fail when your practice gets tested in sparring or competition. Instead, you can take these simple rules and transform your drills and exercises into rapid skill-building machines. Your classmates and training partners won't believe your progress. And if you're an instructor, your students will get better faster than ever and have more fun while doing it. Go to combatlearning.com slash transfer to sign up to our email list and grab your transfer cheat sheet now. Plus, you'll never miss an episode and get access to exclusive tips. And just to say thanks, I'll send you my introduction to motor learning for martial arts PDF so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing on this podcast. So go to combatlearning.com slash transfer now to get your cheat sheet and other goodies. That's combatlearning.com slash transfer, T-R-A-N-S-F-E-R. So if, if you're not familiar with the term internal focus of attention, some, I think some people also call it uh, proximal uh, focus of attention, that is when you give instruction that tells you how to move your body. 
So in this case, I believe it was a basket, it's a basketball task, and they gave instruction about how to move the wrist in in the shot, where to place their feet for the stance, and how to move their feet, and where to place their eyes. And uh, that was that. That's very internal. That's a very internally focused type of instruction or a coaching cue. Now, if that sounds like 98% of, of the instruction that you have received throughout your martial arts career, I have too. That's true. So most of what we receive as martial arts students in the current martial arts climate of, of training is very internally focused, highly detailed instruction. Now, the other group got what's called an external focus of attention to their instruction. And what happens there is they tell you something away from your body to, to focus on, to, to put your attention on. And they give you an idea of what you need to do to complete that task but let your body organize itself in order to complete it. So in this case, they told them where to aim for um, and a few, other, a few other things, but they didn't tell them how to move their body and the, how to flick the wrist and the angles and the stance and things like that. And uh, what, they, what they found might surprise you. So here's what they found. With, with the internal focus of attention on coaching cues, with things such as wrist action and stance, their accuracy was actually lower and their output was higher. They expended more energy. For the external focus group, they showed greater accuracy and economy of motion. So they, they, they did not as expend as much energy. And surprisingly, this even showed in specific muscle groups and that's interesting to me because as I became more knowledgeable about Taekwondo and while I was teaching it, I, I started to realize that there's a lot of muscle control that happens when you're throwing a good kick or a good punch. You have to know when to keep your, your muscles relaxed. You have to know when to activate them. And then sometimes you have to activate and then slack the muscles very quickly and the timing is very delicate. And um, sometimes in, in a kick, you have, you know, the base leg needs to be stiffer, but the but the kicking leg needs to be a little more whippy and and loose. And then, you know, the the you, the way you recruit the muscles and the way you tense and untense them, the timing is can be very delicate and and complex. Um, and what was interesting that the external focus attention allowing these people to organize themselves or their bodies really to self-organize as they tried to achieve these tasks, they started to achieve uh, on a lower level, they started to, to achieve those specific muscular signals by themselves without instruction. They didn't have to have somebody to tell them, hey, you need to do this with the bicep and this with the tricep and they need to do this timing. They gave them a different way to focus their attention, told them what they, what, what they had to, to accomplish and then let them organize it themselves, which is, that's a big deal. That's a, that's a really big deal, I think. So it, it has a lot of implications for how you design your practice and how you help your students or help yourself 
learn to achieve greater economy of motion. And um, I think one of the ways, a practical way that you can do that is by um, making practice, for example, a little more representative, which that means more like the, the, the actual real thing that you want to do, the performance context, as we call it. So if you wanted to be a better sparrer, which we mostly talk about how to become better spar- sparrers on this, on this podcast, if you want to be better at sparring, then you need to recreate the conditions of sparring or a fight if you're going to be you know, a boxer or an MMA fighter um, as closely as possible. And different types of sparring or sparring related has to be alive, but it doesn't necessarily have to be free sparring. Sparring or sparring related exercises, these fit that bill. But if you want people to, or for your students, or yourself to to get better at economy of motion, you have to give them lots, ample amounts of practice in those conditions so that their body can begin to self-organize in a way um, that it actually gets comfortable with go- enough with what's going on that it can begin to seek out those efficiencies little by little. Um, and that's a process that you're not, you know, it's going to look messy for a while. It's going to, you're going to have to trust that, that your students' bodies are, are doing their thing and it, it could take a while, but you'll notice things get better over time. It, you won't necessarily see it during the practice itself, but you'll see it, you know, weeks, weeks down the road. And that's, you know, that's, that's a tough thing for instructors because instructors expect immediately, immediate performance gains when they give instruction. And that's just not how learning works. Um, it's something we've kind of at least touched on in the combat learning podcast a couple of times, but we haven't really addressed specifically itself. So maybe we'll do that. We'll do that in, a, in another episode. But um, you can't expect real lasting performance gain online, that is during the practice. Um, the real learning happens offline once your your body has got that experience and is beginning to consolidate it. Um, and then as you uh, test it again in other practices, you'll see over weeks, um, you'll see that that incremental gain rather than the sudden sudden gains during actual practice. So that's, that's, I think, the first part of how you can help your students gain that economy of motion is to give them ample practice opportunity in the, the performance context or an exercise that's, that's very close to it and mimics it. Um, and the byproduct of that is you, you're just going to have killers. You're going to have killers that have so much sparring experience that they uh, just... They have they choke less and mess up less in competition. Um, they're more more apt for self defense, more prepared for self defense because they're exper- experiencing that uncomfort, un- discomfort, um, and they're experiencing that that chaos and um, hectic sort of unpredictability of sparring matches in a, in a controlled environment, so that their psychological state is also more prepared to to perform and. Um, which in the when we in a second we're going to actually talk about the the psychological state and economy of motion economy of motion because that's actually a big deal. Um, that's the second article I'm going to go over. But an, another way that you can help them is to give them external focus of attention, and when you give them certain tasks, so if you do positional sparring or technical sparring, 
tell them what it is they need to accomplish in, in terms that does not requ- require you to tell them exactly what to do with their body. Um, a concrete example of that might be with sparring uh, in Taekwondo. You could say, "So you know, in this in this exercise, what I want you to do is to take the." instep of your foot, the very top of the foot, and I need you to kick it all the way flush into the hogu in order to score. Um, and they, they might, at that point, they're going to have to figure out how to coordinate themselves in order to recreate a round kick, a doyo tagi, because that's what you need to, uh, to score for that, for that technique in that surface area. So in, in many ways, for example, in Taekwondo, you have a sort of taxonomy of techniques and how they work and, and the surface areas that you attack with. There's an entire Korean terminology for the different attacks and, and uh, rather the surfaces that you use for attacks. And that goes into the whole um, nomenclature, the, the, the naming convention in Korean. Um, that's, that work for that is actually done for you and helping you understand how you can explain these techniques from an external focus of attention. Think of what's the target area that you need to hit and then what part of the foot do you hit with. Now, when you say what part of the foot you're hitting with, that is a little bit of an internal focus of, of, of attention. But the, the real focus is actually on the target. You need to hit this in order to score but the rule is you have to hit it with this part of your foot. So you're not telling them how to chamber, how to pivot, uh, and all the other very detailed things that come along with Taekwondo instruction that I used to just spend hours and hours you know, going over during a week trying to help my students, especially my adult students. Skip all that and uh, try a, a, a way to make it as external as, as possible in terms of instruction and then bake that into how you design the uh, the live drills and the exercises that you used to keep the performance or the practice rather as close to the performance context as you can so that kind of goes back into the the concept of aliveness and representativeness and variability which is another discussion but these things they tie in together and they, they form synergies and they're all very related to each other so, um, and to be honest, in other words, you know, if you're, if you're doing more constraints-led approach to, to things, if you're doing more of a variable practice kind of design, you're going to get some of this stuff already baked in to help you with all these ancillary benefits, such as greater economy of motion, which is awesome. I think that's great. Um, so moving on to how a person's motivational state or psychological state can be helpful to attaining economy of motion is this article enhanced expectancies improve movement efficiency in runners and again that'll be that'll be linked in the show notes and what happens here is they basically find that when the people that were conducting, the researchers were conducting this experiment, they had one group that they didn't really give much feedback to as they, as they did their running trials. Um, they did their laps. And they had another team that they gave uh, positive feedback to. And what they found was even though uh, their, their actual 
their actual uh, physical performance, like how fast they ran and, and that their times didn't change much between the trials. The team that had the positive feedback showed greater economy of motion. They expended less energy as a result of those encouragements. Now, the encouragements were actually not true. They were fabricated. And the nature of the encouragements were not knowledge of their performance in particular, but knowledge more about their performance or how they were performing almost in a relative sense. So what they said was, hey, you're doing a great job. You are like in the top 10% percentile of your demographic, you know, your age group and your, and your, and your gender. And as a result of that, they showed greater economy of motion. They actually had a gain in how efficient they were in running their laps. So in this case, you know, you didn't see necessarily a, a, a raise in, in ability, but you, um, but you did see greater efficiency come out of it. Now there, there's a lot of there's a lot of theories about this. I, mean, I think it probably has to do with being less less worried about how you're performing, so less performance anxiety. Um, you think you've, you're doing fine, so your muscles are probably becoming less tense. Uh, you're not focused internally. Um, I think one of the reasons kind of for, for this, and then also actually jumping back to the previous article we discussed, one of the reasons that internal focus of attention actually causes so much trouble is it puts your conscious attention, your conscious processing on the technique. And when you're too conscious about what you're doing, about what you're performing, that creates what's what researchers call noise, which causes you to uh, mess up. You get weird anomalies in your movement, and, and, and um, sometimes it can even cause you to choke, right? To freeze or, or to, to just bomb in your performance. And what happens with this type of feedback and with an external locus of attention for, for um, instruction is that your, your attentional focus is on something else. And you're not focused on exactly how you're performing it. So it allows your body to kind of do its thing. And you self-organize towards that goal. Instead of being very cognizant of even uh, rather self-conscious of how each joint and muscle in your body is moving and how that's supposed to 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 you know help you with your performance. Now, if you're listening to this and your head's spinning, I, I get it. <laughs> um, you know, you're probably thinking like, how in the world am I supposed to help my students become more efficient at expending energy if I can't give them you know, really specific, really direct instruction. And I'm not saying you can never do that. Um, there, there's probably plenty of exceptions, but overall, especially in the early stages of learning, it's it's really best to give students um, as much leeway as possible to kind of build, let their body do their own thing and sort of let them practice and experiment and build towards that on their own. Um, we already know that whatever types of skills we do, even if we don't have an instructor, they're giving us tons of feedback. Eventually we get more efficient at it no matter what, you know, humans, as Dr. As Dr. Gray says, we're just learning machines. You know, the human learning system is so incredible that we can still, in most cases, get learning gains, even if they're smaller and slower when we're using bad training methods, you can still learn well, right? These traditional training methods still produce, in most cases, these world-class athletes, people, and, and, you know, everyone in between, you know, people that are, that are pretty good, people that are, you know, able enough, people that are good enough to defend themselves or, you know, whatever. 
these these uh, traditional methods, even though they're not the the best, not the most efficient, and sometimes can be counterproductive, you know, we still learn, right? There's there's very few cases where you have a negative transfer of learning, where uh, you know, a practice of one thing in one context actually uh, you know, makes you worse in the performance context. That's very rare. Like it's really hard to to, to actually achieve that. Uh, in most cases, it's you know, very mild. Uh, positive transfer or neutral transfer. It doesn't really matter. Um, so I, you know, y- you don't have to be perfect about this. You don't have to be, you know, y- right. It, it, that's, and that's one of the things that I find really liberating about the, um, the constraints led approach is that, yes, it does require a very skilled practitioner to administer the, this, this methodology. You need a coach there, that, that designs the practices a certain way, that has a certain and specific way to give feedback and know when to give feedback without you know disrupting the natural process and maintain motivation and things like that. But you don't have to be as tightly systematized and as overly egregiously detailed as you do if you want to be a quote-unquote good um, I shouldn't say quote unquote, but a, a good instructor or a good coach on the, the traditional model. Because to be a good instructor or a good coach on the traditional model means you need to be able to articulate the, the most finest details in the most uh, easy to understand and engaging way that you can to your students, plus have all these elaborate drills and all over the place and um, it's just very, it's just highly, highly detailed work in a very different way to be, to be considered really good in the in the in the traditional model. Um, and I just I find the more of a nonlinear pedagogy, a constraints led approach, that model to be more liberating in terms of. Yes, it's very detailed work on the back end from a from a th- theoretical perspective, but uh, the actual practice itself is much more fun. And, you don't the the feedback doesn't have to be as detailed or as immediate all the time. You can let students explore and then come in at certain intervals and and and, and ask questions and things like that. So we're going to get more to those the specifics on those types of of uh, tactics and methods for constraints led approach in later episodes. But um, yeah, that, that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. Let me know if you like this. I felt like I've rambled a little bit, but. Um, let me know if you like this episode, and if so, I will make more of these because I really like challenging myself to look at research that these other podcasters and, and professors are doing and then try and apply it to martial arts. And I'm not an expert in this. I'm, I'm looking at this and really racking my brain to understand it as much as I can and hoping that I can be as accurate as possible in presenting it to you. So if you are somebody who knows motor control, you've done a PhD or a master's degree or something, or you're, you're otherwise more trained than I am in this place, you know, send me an email. Let me know. Let me know what I got wrong, and I'll um, I'll try to rectify it and uh, and incorporate it into my understanding, and and um, or I'll have you on. You know, if you're a martial artist and you're a fan of the show, and and you know about motor control and all that, and motor motor learning and and coaching science and all the things around that orbit, hey, I'll have you. On, I'd love to have you on the show and have a discussion. So, Josh at CombatLearning.com. If you want to send me an email, let me know. Give me feedback. Maybe come on the show, and um, I will talk to you guys later.
Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.